Let's go. Hello, and welcome to Sustain Open Source Design. Is it Sustain Our Design? No, it's Sustain Open Source Design. Yes, yes. Sustain Open Source Design. SOS. <laughs> what are you <laughs> Welcome to Sustain Open Source Design Podcast, SOS Design. This is a series of conversation of a confluence between design, open source, and everything that sprouts in between. For this time around, we have an amazing guest, Daniel Borka. Hello, Daniel. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, so Daniel is a product manager and designer who focuses on solving complex global health problems in simple ways. He's currently the director of product and design at the not-for-profit Resolve to Save Lives, where he leads the open source project simple.org. Simple is used by thousands of hospitals in India, Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, and Ethiopia to manage over 3.2 million patients with hypertension and diabetes. Daniel is also on the board of Laboratoria, a not-for-profit base in Peru, helping Latin America women build successful careers in tech. And in 2021, he founded the open source project healthicons.org to provide free icons to healthcare projects around the world. Daniel, welcome. And do you want to give us a bit of an intro of what you're doing right now? I mean, I'm guessing a lot of our audience already know you, but just wanted to give you the space. Well, thank you so much for having me, guys. So I think you gave a really nice introduction. My main focus is on the Simple Project. So simple.org, if you want to read more about it. It's software that's used by healthcare workers in about 8,500 hospitals in places like India, Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, and Ethiopia to manage patients with hypertension. Hypertension, it sounds basic, but hypertension is just the fancy word for high blood pressure. Hypertension alone kills more people than all infectious diseases combined. So about 10 million people a year die from just hypertension because it's a leading indicator for cardiovascular disease. If you can help people manage their blood pressure, so lower their blood pressure below 140 over 90, you could save 100 million lives the next 30 years. And so I work with the former director of the U.S. Centers for Disease Control, Dr. Tom Frieden, on this huge initiative. So I work with a whole bunch of public health people, but I help run a tech team that supports their work. Nice. That sounds amazing. And yeah, uh, being a person who has familiar history with hypertension and really connected with this subject. Just a, a question for everyone listening to this podcast. I listen that you're currently changing your focus towards healthcare. And I'm interested to know like how that happened because yeah, I feel like you're focusing now on the big problems now. And I really would like to, for you to share that. So I spent the beginning of my career with a design agency in Canada that I co-founded with my brother and some friends. And then I spent the middle of my career working in Silicon Valley on a bunch of startups, also working with Mozilla. You know, I had some experience with open source work earlier in my career. And Silicon Valley was really fun. And at the end, I spent five years as a design partner at Google's venture capital arm called GV, gv.com. And honestly, when I was at GV, it was really interesting work. So you're a design partner, which means you get to basically give design and product advice to lots and lots of startups. And 
Google Ventures has a ton of money, right? So you're investing, when I was there, it was about almost half a billion dollars a year. I think it's quite a bit more than that now. And so in that way, it's very exciting. You're investing in these kind of rocket ship startups doing really exciting work. But the most interesting work at GV was that we did about half the investing in life sciences companies. So you get to interact with a bunch of really interesting health tech startups, everything from Flatiron Health, which is like a big data oncology company based in New York that is now owned by Roche, to like a company that was making a wearable therapeutic for people with essential tremor. So it's people with neurological disease that causes their hands to shake. It was like noise canceling headphones for your neurological system. So it would stop your hand from shaking so you could pick up a spoon of soup. Well, I worked with a hardware company that was making, literally making a wearable defibrillator for people with a sudden risk of cardiac death. So these are people walking around with a very high risk of having a heart attack. So likely you had a cardiac event and for the next six months or 12 months, you have an elevated risk of having a second one. And so they're walking around with a wearable defibrillator that's measuring their heart. And like if you your heart stops beating, it will automatically send a shock that brings your heart back to life. So you, know, you work with these companies and you're like, oh, this is really interesting. But the challenge with venture capital, it's very cushy, but none of the problems are your problems. Like you're just giving out advice all the time. And that's nice. Like, don't get me wrong. It's very comfortable. But you can't really take responsibility for anyone's successes or failures because really it's on the teams themselves that are doing it. And I think as long as you have a little bit of humility, you realize that like your advice is pretty cheap that you're giving to them. And I was thinking, I'm too young to retire Venture capital is sort of retirement. I still had a few hard problems left that I wanted to work on. And I was like, oh, if I could only work on something that's very difficult, but also good for the world, I'd be very interested in doing that. And I wanted to work on a problem that wasn't just for wealthier people in the world. I think that's another problem with venture capitals. Venture capital is capitalism. It's right at the gears of capitalism. And if you want to make money, you make money mostly by charging wealthy people for goods and services because they've got the most money to spend. So I was very excited when I met Dr. Tom Frieden almost exactly five years ago. And he was talking about the mission of Resolve to Save Lives. And I was, you know, it seemed very aligned with my interests. And yeah, I've been working on global health ever since. And it's been a very steep learning curve, but very exciting. It's fantastic to hear. I mean, it's it's wonderful to hear about design that is moving forward towards the open source world and seeking to use that as a way of improving lives in the broader sense. And you mentioned in your intro here that design really matters in public health projects. And you've worked on things such as health icons to support the design side of things in public health. When you were approaching a problem like Simple, how did you go about integrating that field with the design aspect? So when I think of design, I think of design as quite broadly, right? Everything from service design to visual design to user experience design to branding. I mean, I think of the whole gamut. In public health, the main challenge is healthcare worker time. So the very first thing I did when I joined Resolve is I flew to India. So the main country we were working in at the time, identified a local design and engineering team to work with, because I think there's a big problem of foreigners coming in and thinking they can just solve local problems. So we wanted to work with local teams. But the very first thing we did as a group is go into the field and watch healthcare workers do their jobs. The first thing you notice is that healthcare workers have almost no time. So a typical clinical visit in India is less than four minutes. In Bangladesh, it's less than three. So I just looked it up. I was just in Switzerland a few days ago. A typical visit in Switzerland is 20. In the UK, it's about 15. That is a huge difference. So in the span of 15 minutes, the doctor is going to triage, talk to you, consult with you, do measures like blood pressure measures or blood sugar, blood glucose measures for diabetes, counsel you. 
prescribe to you and record the visit all in that short period of time. And it's not like, you know, when you two visit a clinician, you're probably the only person in the room. In India, it's pretty typical to have other patients standing right behind you, quite in a crowded, busy room. So if you want software to succeed in this environment, it has to be respectful of healthcare workers' time. It's interesting because you watch them manage patient records and largely it's still on paper in many places of the world. Even here in the UK, to be fair, I'm not, this is a criticism about any individual country. But paper takes quite a bit of time to manage, right? To pull down a paper card off the shelf, the right card, fill it out, put it back on the shelf. And when we talk to healthcare workers, that first trip, at the end of every single interview with a healthcare worker, I would ask them, well, what can I do to make your work life better? Nine out of 10 clinicians would look straight at you and say, don't make my life harder. And you're like, okay, okay. And now I'm looking for areas of opportunity where they're already doing something that's time consuming. How can we reduce time on that? to reduce the amount of effort that they're doing? And how can I respectfully fit software into their clinical workflow so it takes up less time? So typical clinical visit now in simple. So we measure, we've got metadata in simple so we can track kind of typical usage. And a return visit, so a normal follow-up visit in simple, takes 14 seconds. That's the median time right now. And that's the great accomplishment, I think, of Simple, is that it does almost nothing, but does almost nothing wildly efficiently. If you've got three-minute patient visit, you can fit in 14 seconds to record patient data. And that's a big challenge for us. And we keep that as kind of our North Star, being respectful of clinician time. And then you want to make something usable and efficient and easy to use at a glance. You know, these healthcare workers are seeing 100, 120 patients a day. So you have to remember that they're picking up your app and using it 120 times a day. So it's got to be dialed in. So what I'm hearing is that you achieve that that goal, like you're seeing those goals with the use of design, right? That's where I want to connect that back to how design empowers this whole ecosystem of science and human concerns and health. And what I'm hearing is that for all of that to work properly in a super complex environment like ours in this uh, current world, we are using design to get closer to that goal. Yes. As one piece of the puzzle, you need good public health, obviously. (laughs) You need great engineering, tie that to design, and then you can succeed. Yeah. I mean, design alone, and you know, I just did a, I was in Switzerland over the last week to speak at a conference. And the title of the talk was, Can Designers Save Lives? Not by Themselves. I think designers, we all have a bit of hubris and we think, oh, design can save the world. Design can't save the world if we think design is the most important thing. Public health is the most important thing where I work. Design and technology is a supporting function to public health work and healthcare workers' interactions with patients. I think that's a really important attitude to keep in mind when you're working on this. I think that ties back into what Memo was saying a minute ago, which is, you know, how can design empower this? The important thing is the work being done, not necessarily the design. The design is facilitating. Like you said, identifying that it was just saving time, doing that extremely mundane task, but doing it extremely fast was the revolutionary point there. And I think that's fantastic. Yeah. And to do that, to to be clear, to do that doesn't just take good design. It requires ruthless prioritization from a public health standpoint, which is arguably design. And this, I think, is the most interesting thing is if you want to optimize a system so it only takes 14 seconds to do data entry, you have to agree to do less. Do we collect data about a patient's smoking habits? We do not. Do we even collect information about the patient's labs? We do not. 
you can make clear arguments that you need serum creatinine labs in order to treat a patient for hypertension because they should get a serum creatinine lab in order to know whether or not there's a risk of giving them certain medications. We made the decision that that can be recorded on paper the same way it is today. And the patient's always carrying around a paper slip with them with that information on it. Do you have to put that into the digital system? Arguably, you don't. You don't need a comprehensive record of every patient. You need the minimal amount of data to drive core indicators to drive public health objectives. And so if you can work with public health people who understand the need for prioritization of a healthcare worker's time, then you can collaborate together to create a system that is that efficient. And what is the intersection and how does the intersection function between you know paper and digital? Designers love to think or technologists love to think that we should digitize everything. Paper is great. Paper never runs out of batteries. Everyone's got a device that can enter into paper. You know, there's pens and pencils everywhere. Paper is very robust and flexible. There's not things like error checking. If the person's name is David Francis the 14th who lives at this address, you can enter that as the name field on a piece of paper because like that's how you remember to find David. So paper is excellent in many ways. We try to think starting from the end. We start to think, what are we going to have to report on the back end in order to drive public health changes? So you need to be able to see, for instance, of your patients who are enrolled with hypertension, how many of them returned with a controlled blood pressure? Okay, so I need to know who the person is. I need to know, did they come back? And I need to know what their blood pressure was. Well, did I need to know their serum creatinine lab? I did not. So as long as I can reliably and safely treat the patient using a paper record, which is the standard of care in many of the countries we work in, then that's acceptable. I'm not expecting the technology to fix the entire healthcare system. I'm expecting it to drive better outcomes in the hypertension program. Yeah, I really like to build up on that because I think it's really interested to decouple like what a designer do in the modern world. And that it's not everything about technology. And I want to bring back that thought in something that you said of, I heard something like doing a good prioritization process, it's a way of designing. So can we build a bit more on that? Like how can designers in this modern world can rely less on technology? Because I'm also really interested in that topic. Like how can you be a designer without relying so much of your work on technology? It's really interesting. All right. There, there are a few answers to this. The first is you have to see yourself more as a service designer than as a user interface designer. My goal isn't to get data into a piece of software. My goal is to have a patient treated well for hypertension within the realistic constraints of a non-communicable disease clinic in a hospital in India or Bangladesh or Sri Lanka, right? And so you have to be very careful not to get locked into thinking your tool is a user interface in software. The tool can be a conversation between two people. Your tool can be a piece of paper, multiple pieces of paper, and your tool can be digital. So, you know, I dislike the term service design, just sounds so generic, but like that is what service design is. It's thinking, okay, a patient walks into the clinic, they go through a flow in the clinic and their data is moving with them, maybe on paper, maybe in a digital system, maybe verbally, where they're explaining to a clinician what's going on. They navigate to different rooms in the hospital and then they leave and they have to come back in 30 days to do it all over again. Well, how can I make that system more efficient and more patient-centric? That's really the way you think about it. And then the second thing that's really important is to think about who sets the requirements for a system. So generally speaking in public health, for instance, either bureaucrats or health officials or 
experts, people like cardiologists, will set the standards for what data needs to be collected for every patient. And then you have to understand where they're coming from. These people usually live in the capital city or large city, pretty far away from the rural clinics you might be working in. Their tools are generally spreadsheets. So when they write requirements like you need to collect all these things about a patient, they're not thinking of this as a form that healthcare workers need to fill out. They're thinking of it as like, oh, I when I write my reports, I will need this data, right? So they're pretty far removed from reality on the ground from how data will actually be managed in, at the clinical level. If you can start working more closely with those decision makers, you can have more realistic requirements. Because fundamentally, those requirements will sink or swim, mixing a metaphor here, but will make your product succeed or fail. If you have to collect, you know, as anybody who works in enterprise software or in healthcare knows, if your requirements say you have to collect 22 pieces of data, there's no way to make that simple. So you have to work more closely with those people who are setting the requirements to set realistic requirements that will work within the context on the ground. And you can do that by bringing the context closer to them, showing them stories of how current healthcare workflows are working, to show them how their decisions impact actual software. I do that a lot by prototyping. You asked me to collect 22 fields. You probably don't see that in your spreadsheet, but like let me show you what you wrote in that spreadsheet translates to in software. And they look at it. They don't think it's realistic for people to do it, but they didn't know what they were asking for. They don't know the consequences of what they were asking for. So if you can kind of show them the pain that a form like that will be, they're like, oh, hang on a sec. That's an unrealistic amount of data. Let's pare it down. This is the legwork you need to do to create a system that's well-designed. It's not just spending your time in Figma or Photoshop. You touched on a couple of really wonderful points there, and I really wanted to shine some light on the idea that of the service of a designer being the bridge between those who need a problem solved and those who can facilitate the problem solving. Understanding the fact that the healthcare worker is being asked to enter 22 different individual pieces of data at a time, and then someone who might not necessarily understand what that looks like. Like that is, that's crucial in the act of design. But one thing that I've appreciated hearing you discuss is the pushback against the idea of, shall we call it the predominantly Western point of view of digital modernization. Modernization and in design oftentimes does look exactly like Figma, Photoshop. In a world for you, in your world, what you work in, what would you say the majority of your design process involves? A lot of it is a lot of talking, to be honest with you. May not be a very satisfying answer, but it's talking to our partners on the ground, doing a lot of user research and talking to, to healthcare workers and figuring out what they really need. Designers love coming in with solutions, but oftentimes, especially in healthcare, you're designing for an audience who's very unlike you. I mean, even my team in Bangalore, they grew up in the same country as those healthcare workers, but their jobs are wildly different. Their economic level is wildly different. Requires a lot of being in the field and actually listening to healthcare workers. And then taking what the healthcare workers are saying and communicating it to the decision makers. I like that designers can be kind of shepherds of those kinds of stories and connect the decision makers to the healthcare workers who are literally work for those decision makers. I mean, they report up eventually up into the Federal Ministry of Health and into the public health teams. But design isn't a good place to bring those stories to light and also to illustrate kind of the consequences of decisions. So I think one of the superpowers of design is to make decisions appear, appear real or make potential futures appear real to, to get kind of philosophical about it. So 
what we can do is kind of mock up what workflows might look like as we change them and not just the user interface, but like, hey, so the patient comes in, they have this piece of paper, this data gets written on the piece of paper, and then you scan a QR code that's on the piece of paper, do the computery part. But then you hand the paper back and write down the next visit date on the paper again so the patient can put it on their wall when they get home or their door so they remember to come back to the facility in 30 days. And then we'll remember to send them a text message to their feature phone to remind them to come back to care in 30 days. And you can really sketch out those types of user journeys in a way that makes it feel very tangible to people, kind of what we're actually asking patients to do and what we're asking healthcare workers to do and making sure it's within kind of the realistic constraints of their everyday jobs, everyday lives. At this point, I really need to get something out of my chest because I feel like only few designers are able to work at the problems that you're working at right now. And I feel from my background that that's a privilege. For example, that I feel like designers, like most of designers need to work for something capitalist centric first yeah, in order to get your work around and seen by other people and be able to work on this level. Can you build a bit on that? Because I feel like one thing that we're talking about is make access to healthcare more universal. And since we're on the design topic on this podcast, I would like to address the topic of making working in design for healthcare more universal, access of that design work more universal. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah. I mean, it's a great question, and I'm not sure I've got a complete answer for you. Obviously, I'm very fortunate. As I said earlier, I worked five years in venture capital. I worked at a startup that became Slack. I've had a very fortunate, long design career. I'm also old. I've been at this for 24, 25 years doing design. Working in healthcare is the hardest thing I've ever done. It's very useful to have a very broad set of skills like mine to work in healthcare because it makes you able to tackle kind of all the different aspects that we run into. And as you said, I worked in capitalism for 20 years and now I work at a not-for-profit. That's a very fortunate position to be in for me. The part where I don't have a great answer for you is we need more people who do this. Oh, don't get me wrong. There are many people putting in decades of work on these problems. Like I am Johnny come lately here. Like this is, I've just jumped in five years ago. There are people putting tons of work here who don't get to go on podcasts. They are doing great stuff. But we do need more people working in places like public health or civics, the environment, the big hard problems of the world. The problem is nobody who works on those problems knows what design is. I mean, they barely know what technology is. And they speak a completely different language. The public health people I work with just speak completely different, a completely different language to us. They've got a million acronyms you've never heard of. Like they'll literally say, you know, an HTN patient is at the NCD clinic and an LMIC. So make sure to send the HCW to their home. Like I know what that all means now, but like I sure didn't when I joined. It's really hard. And there's no one over there listing jobs and saying, oh, come over and work in public health. There's very few jobs in public health that are listed as a product designer or UX designer because they don't know what that is. And so what we really need, I think, is more senior people finding or making the opportunities to come over and work in this space and then bringing over more junior people. Because you need a deep set of skills to get started because you have to educate the public health people about what tech and design is. You need to operate on a fairly shoestring budget to accomplish difficult things. And that's really hard. I think it would be really tough for a student to just jump out of college and like tackle some of these problems. 
So if we can get more senior people over the next 10, 20 years to like come work on these things and then start building a culture of design and user experience and human-centered design, which, you know, people are doing. I'm not the only person doing it. There are many people trying to do this. But if we can build momentum and get there, I think we can make a big difference with design in the world. Because frankly, designers have made a big talk, you know, including myself, that design can change the world and design has all this opportunity. In the last 20 years, we've figured out how design can make a lot of money. You know, some great startups, Pinterest, Instagram, Airbnb started by designers. Design makes a lot of money, can be very successful. Do we really change the world for the better? Kind (laughs) of. Sounds also like it's a matter of visibility, like decision makers in the public healthcare world being aware that design can make a change because I see also like a gap over there that design can bridge, like visibility for healthcare decision makers to look towards design. Because right now I feel like a lot of decision makers in the healthcare space are, as you say, not even aware that designers can help fuel the growth of those projects. You're right. I think it's really building a culture of human-centered design in places like public health. You know, it makes me very happy that one of our partners that we work with in India, the Indian Council of Medical Research, which is an you know, important institution in India, just last week, they were having a big epidemiology conference with field epidemiology training program, FETP program in India. And Dr. Ganesh, who I work with closely, did a presentation at this huge conference in India about human-centered design in public health. And I'm like, ah, this is great. Like, you don't even, you don't want a designer up there talking about design. What you really want is an epidemiologist up there talking about design. So you build enough allies, you can move things. Absolutely. And to touch on that last point, sometimes it seems like the goal of a designer is to make ourselves obsolete. So that other people in the field who know more than us about that field will be talking about the things that we're talking about and integrating it into the field that they already work in so that we can then go do that somewhere else. I don't know if we'll ever make ourselves obsolete. Yeah, I like your sentiment. I really do. I wrote an article a few years ago when I was at at GV that said, everyone's a designer, get over it. I really, really pissed off a lot of designers by saying, well, everyone's a designer. You know, the person who sets the requirements for your software is a designer. The CFO at your company is a designer because when they choose the pricing mechanism at your company, you can't fake your way out of that with design. Like that is fundamentally built into your product. I mean, it was probably an insensitive title. I probably could say everyone is designing rather than everyone's a designer. I was probably intentionally being provocative. But I think this is very true. I think if you look at public health, the goal for me is to broaden the tent of who thinks they're a designer. And an epidemiologist is doing human-centered design. I am all for it. Absolutely. I think design is a big tent and we need to welcome more people into the tent rather than clinging to job titles and our insecurity. Design is a big tent and we need to welcome more people into that tent. Great sentiment. I'm giving you a big thumbs up on the video. And with that... I would love to move into Spotlight, which is where we would love to shine a little bit of light on projects or information repositories that for us matter very heavily and we think deserve a little bit of love. For myself, recently I've been working on a project that required me to use a bunch of stock photos and a bunch of pictures of people. And the normal free open source stock photos that I've been relying on are, shall we say, fairly alabaster. And in the interest of representing people who use the product in the product's own marketing, 
we had to seek out more stock photos that featured people of color. And that led me to nappy.co, which is an open source, open license stock photo site specifically for people of color. And my friend and coworker shared this with me and it's fantastic. You know, it features people of different skin tones, different hand models using different things. So you can see the people who will be using the product. You can demonstrate them actually using the product. That is nappy.co. And I really think they deserve all of the love that they can get. That's great. That's actually one I wasn't aware of previously. So thank you, Janica, by the way, if you're listening to this, you brought this to my attention. And so let's shine some light on you as well. So from my side, I'd like to draw attention to the book Factfulness by Hans Rosling. To me, so this book came out maybe two or three years ago, right before Hans Rosling died from cancer. And he was a public health person who worked for many years on trying to use data to show health trends in the world. I think it's a fantastic book of optimism, where it makes you think that Problems that seem intractable in the world, like how are we possibly going to move this problem forward? How is this country going to go from A to B? Because they look like they're really struggling. It shows you how the world is much more fluid than you think it is. You know, how countries like Sweden might have been at lower economic status in the 1950s and today are considered wealthy countries with very happy populace. So I think if you want to go work on hard problems like the environment or public health or civics, and you think the world is impossible to change and you get frustrated like I do sometimes, that factfulness is a really good way to look at the world and through rational use of data to show how things do move up and to the right over time with enough pressure from the public and from people like you. That's fantastic. I'm taking a look over this book now, and it will be added to my ever-growing list of books that I'm really going to have to read going into this summer. Yeah, my spotlight for today is This Side by Mark Edelstone, an online creator and facilitator. Its title is New Ways of Working Playbook. It's a playbook with lots of nice info about, yeah, all the stuff about new work, creating, designing the new work, like meetings, feedback, roles, decision-making, conflicts, agreements, lots of interesting stuff. Yeah, that's my spotlight. Thank you very much for joining us, Daniel Berka. It has been an absolute pleasure to speak with you. Where can people find you? Oh, I'm most easily found on Twitter, although I use it a little less these days, but I'm at D-B-U-R-K-A on Twitter. And I'm DanielBurka.com, which has my email contact on it if you want to get in touch. Great. Thank you for coming and have a wonderful day. 